This is a Federal News Network podcast. Federal spending for large quantities of medical supplies sucked in many companies doing business with the government for the first time. In fact, five times as many as in a normal year. The Government Accountability Office says agencies learned a thing or two, and now they need to remember them. Earlier, we talked to the GAO's Marie Mack, Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions, about use of other transaction authorities. Now she joins me for how agencies can apply the lessons learned with non-traditional contractors. Ms. Mack, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be here. And in this report of the contracting on Lots of vendors, lots of new to the federal government vendors using all of that money that was appropriated for pandemic response. What are some of the key findings in bringing in these new vendors to federal contracting, much of which was under OTA, but I guess some of it was FAR also? Just for a little context, I think it's important to understand that although agencies did award about five times as many contractors to vendors without prior federal contracting experience when it comes to responding to the pandemic, overall, 88% of the contracts were awarded to vendors with prior federal contracting experience. But some of the other important facts to recognize is that small business received most of the contract awards, about two-thirds, but then when it comes to dollar amount, that was only equivalent to about 25% of the dollar amount in terms of contract obligations. And then the other point is that vendors without prior federal contract experience were more likely to provide certain products and services. For example, while nearly all the obligations for drugs and treatments, such as vaccines and therapeutics, went to vendors with prior federal government experience, vendors without prior federal government experience received a higher proportion for contract obligations for things like medical equipment and supplies, such as the N95 respirators, gowns, gloves, and laboratory testing, services related to diagnostic testing for COVID-19. In USDA, fruits, vegetables, meats, poultry, and fish for food boxes for that Farmers to Families Food Box Program, that's where they had relied most heavily on vendors without prior federal contracting experience. So overall, was this a good thing for the government then? It was certainly good for those new contractors, new to the federal government. Can anything be inferred or learned from this going forward then? Um, Yeah, I think generally it would be considered a good thing. There are, you know, engaging contractors that usually don't engage with the federal government is always good. There's more competition. There's more interest in working with the federal government and engaging in small business. That's always a good thing. Because as we spoke about earlier, there was a lot of spending under other transaction authority, and that lacked some of the reporting and transparency that you get under the FAR. On the other hand, there's all this flexibility. A lot of the spending under the FAR is bureaucratic, I guess, and looking difficult, especially if you're outside the government looking in for the first time. The FAR can be daunting to comply with all of the accounting rules and so on, yet there's a lot of transparency and reporting mechanisms built in for the government. It seems like there's a chance for some crossover here, maybe a little bit of simplification in the FAR, but a little bit of reporting and oversight mechanisms in the OTA. I think when it comes down to the FAR, I mean, I think a lot of these industries that don't work with the federal government, when they start doing that, they realize what is required. And once it's more established and understood, I guess what I'm saying is I wouldn't recommend changing certain FAR requirements. They're there for a reason. But I think there's other things that we can address in terms of how contracting is done better in these kinds of situations. And that's where this report really went towards in terms of 
contracting officials making a responsibility determination before awarding a contract to a prospective vendor and capturing lessons learned. That's where some of those details in this particular report focused on. And I think that's important. We are speaking with Marie Mack, Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisition Issues at the GAO. And let's get to some of those recommendations. What are the lessons that need to be learned from this rapid, all of a sudden, we got to go type of uh, situation the government found itself in? For contracting officers, they are required to make this contracting responsibility determination before they award a contract to a prospective vendor and to determine how, if a contractor is responsible or a prospective vendor, they have to, for example, have adequate financial resources to perform the contract, have a satisfactory performance record, and be able to comply with the proposed delivery or performance schedule. And contracting officers at the different departments that we looked at in this particular case, it would be Defense, Homeland Security, USDA, and Human Health Services. They use a variety of resources, for instance, government databases, private sector resources, assistance from other federal agencies, and specific agency-created resources to assess the prospective vendors. However, some of these organizations had limitations in that they didn't have access or they weren't aware that these resources were available to them. And that's where our concern is. Contracting officials need to be aware of all the guidance that's available, be aware of all the resources that are available to them, and be able to use them when it comes to this kind of thing. And then government-wide, it's important to recognize the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, which is under OMB. They provide overall direction for procurement policies, regs, procedures, and they promote economy, efficiency, effectiveness, and acquisition processes. This office had issued an emergency acquisition guide that outlines a number of management and best practices that agencies should consider when contracting during emergency. But the problem here was that this guide did not include how you assess these vendors under urgent timeframes and how do you work with new vendors. We found that this guide has not been updated since 2011. So a lot of the resources are no longer active. And those are some of the big problems we found. Because, you know, over the years, over the past 10 years anyway, and I've been following this stuff for 30 years, but the disasters happen with some regularity. People forget we had outbreaks of viral pandemics, not back in 1918, but we had them a few years ago. There was Ebola. People forget about that one. And we've had all these weather disasters going back to Katrina and forward from there a couple of administrations ago. It seems like these ought to be living documents, as you've pointed out. The guide from OFPP ought to be looked at regularly and not just every 10 years. That seems to be the fundamental lesson learned here is that you got to stay nimble on your feet because disasters happen all the time. Absolutely. And then the other big finding area that we were concerned about was that agencies have They have existing processes to collect lessons learned, and not all of them included the contracting side and contracting observations in these efforts. And that's really important because, like you said, as disasters continue to happen, natural disasters, any of these kind of emergencies, it doesn't seem likely that a lesson as we move forward and contracting challenges, whether they're challenges or positive practices, really need to be documented and shared with other folks, because as we move forward, that's going to be important. For instance, some of this, in this particular case, in this report, we found that 
some of the challenges that existed were lack of contracting personnel for the volume of awards that had to happen, working with vendors new to federal contracting or supplying products that they had not supplied in the past, limited timeframes to make those awards, and then contracting for supplies and services the agency doesn't typically buy. So those are all types of things that need to be addressed and be aware of in terms of policies, guidance, procedures, how to do this better. Some of the positive practices are just as important. For example, some agencies do have mechanisms to consolidate the volume of vendor communication contracting officers receive. And then there are also those pre-existing contract vehicles that we are established to respond to COVID-19. For instance, advanced contracts, which we've done work on in the past as well. Got it. So I wonder if maybe the lack of gathering of the eggs of lessons learned was a little bit scattered this time around because the workforce itself was scattered. This is the first disaster where the government itself had to go home to do the work. And maybe that collaboration of the hallways and water coolers, so to speak, didn't happen. That's a good way to describe it, because I think ultimately when it comes to contracts and contracting officers, They award these things that are needed. They're a critical component of any emergency response effort. They provide the life-saving and life-sustaining goods and services. And, you know, a lot of times I think we don't recognize it, but they're kind of the -the behind-the-scenes folks. They are the ones awarding and administering contracts that provide these goods and services. And the challenges that they face have the significant impact on the front line of the response effort. And our RECs really focus on ensuring that the guidance, the training for contracting in emergencies is communicated and in place, and that the contracting lessons learned, both positive and negative, are collected, analyzed, shared with agencies involved, and government-wide, so that as a federal government, we can be better prepared to respond to potentially new complex disasters and emergencies in the future. Marie Mack is Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisition Issues at the GAO. As always, thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, 
And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, 
his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gain the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.